Well, as the speculation continues over what caused the deadly blast at the Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza on October the 17th, a failed jihadi rocket or an Israeli attack, the death toll rises, the desperation increases. One ray of hope, Hamas has freed two individuals, an American mother and daughter, from captivity. After Qatar brokers a deal, I understand. Greg Karlstrom is the Middle East correspondent for The Economist, and he's based in Cairo as a rule. I'm not sure he's there now. Where are you, Greg? I'm in Dubai. In Dubai. What's the latest on the hostages? Are they out? Uh, they've been handed over to the Red Cross, yes. So this is two of, uh, we think, about 200 people who are being held hostage in Gaza. Both of them are American citizens. And as you said, it was a deal brokered by Qatar, which has been under a lot of pressure over the past two weeks because of its connections to Hamas. Much of the leadership of the group uh, is based in Doha, the, the Qatari capital. Many of the Hamas political leaders live there. Uh, Qatar has been involved in uh, funding the government in Gaza for a number of years now with Israeli consent and American consent, but uh, they have pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into Gaza, all of that coming under criticism now after the attack in, in Israel on October 7th. And so uh, I think the this deal certainly reflects the level of pressure that Qatar is under at the moment. What is the deal then? Why would Hamas release these two? They say it's on humanitarian grounds. They're under pressure as well. The Israeli government uh, has said repeatedly that it's not going to open the border, open its border with Gaza until all of these hostages are released. And so that means uh, shipments of food, water, uh, fuel, medicine, they have all been cut off. Israel has turned off the supply of electricity that it provides to Gaza. Uh, and there's been efforts to try and get some aid flowing across the border with Egypt, which is the other country that shares a border with Gaza. But uh, that has been repeatedly delayed, even though both the Israeli and American governments said earlier this week that, that it had been approved. Those aid shipments are still stuck at the border. So Hamas also under a tremendous amount of pressure, and I think trying to show a tiny bit of goodwill right now amid what is a dire uh, economic, socioeconomic uh, circumstances in Gaza. Do you know why those trucks are still stuck? Why don't they just go in? There have been repeated delays over the past few days. So when uh, President Biden visited Israel earlier this week, he met with the Israeli prime minister. They they made this big announcement that 20 trucks were going to be allowed in. And that is just, first of all, a fraction of what is needed in Gaza. The United Nations says about 100 trucks a day uh, are needed to provide enough aid to Gaza. But they've made this initial agreement for 20. But there have been a couple of things holding it up. One of them is that there have been numerous Israeli airstrikes at the Rafah border crossing between Egypt and Gaza over the past two weeks. And so there's damage to the crossing that needs to be repaired before trucks can start coming in. There are also some issues around inspecting the cargo that is on these trucks. Uh, Egypt will do the inspections, but uh, Israel, by by mutual agreement between the two countries, has to sign off on everything that goes into Gaza. And, and there are some issues around inspections that are holding it up now, too. Releasing two hostages out of an estimated, what did you say, 200? Um, yes. Estimates vary, of course. That's That's hardly likely to be seen as a win by anyone, is it? 
No, it's it's certainly not. I mean, the Israeli perspective is not just non-negotiable on the question of release all of the hostages or, or the siege will continue, but the whole Israeli view of Hamas, I think, has changed over the past two weeks. This is a group that, since it took power in 2007 in Gaza, Israel has looked at as a threat, but a manageable threat. And so we've had periodic rounds of conflict in 2008 and 2014, um, but but there's always been a sense in Israel that those things will blow over and they can live with Hamas in control of Gaza. That view has changed entirely over the past two weeks. And the Israeli view is now that this is an intolerable threat on our borders. And so I think even honestly, if Hamas were to release all of the hostages, it wouldn't necessarily deter Israel from what it says is a large military campaign to try and, and eradicate the group or at least remove it from power. You wrote a book. Your first book, I think, called How Long Will Israel, Will Israel Survive? The Threat from Within. Do you think the threat to Israel is still from within? One thing that always happens is one thing that's always happened throughout Israeli history is, is this is a country that has profound internal divisions between uh, different religious groups, between people who have different ideas of what it means to be Jewish, between different ethnicities. Uh, and these divisions in some cases seem uh, incompatible in the way they want the state to be run, they want the state to be organized. And what's happened is that there have always been external threats that have papered over those differences and brought people together. And what had happened over the past 10, 15 years was that the country didn't seem to have any existential external threats. It had, again, what it thought were manageable threats, and these internal conflicts roared to the surface. What we're seeing now is that those conflicts have, have been squashed. You think about how tumultuous this year has been in Israeli politics with the protests against Prime Minister Netanyahu's government. Those protests now have ended and everyone is is united in wartime as, as they always do in Israel. But I think once the war ends, uh, we're going to get back to a very turbulent period in Israeli politics where there will be recriminations, there will be early elections, uh, and those differences will, will once again surge back to the surface. You covered the invasion in 2014. Why is this different? Well, first, the, the battle plans that the Israelis have drawn up are different. 2014 was primarily an aerial campaign. There was 18 days of, of ground fighting within that 50-day war in 2014, but it had a very narrow goal. The Israeli army went one or two kilometers across the border into Gaza. Small numbers of troops were sent, uh, and their objective was to try and identify and close cross-border attack tunnels that Hamas had dug. So it was a, it was a very limited incursion. What Israel is talking about this time, it has mobilized hundreds of thousands of reservists. It is planning uh, to do a full ground invasion of the entirety of Gaza, to go neighborhood by neighborhood, looking for the leaders of Hamas, looking for the group's uh, weapons stockpiles, uh, trying to not just degrade its military capacity, but decapitate the group altogether. And that is going to require urban combat, like the sort of combat that we saw in Iraq in 2003 when the Americans were fighting in Fallujah or, or during the fight against Islamic State uh, six or seven years ago. It's going to be that sort of bloody, devastating street-to-street -street urban fighting. Why don't they go in now? 
It's a very good question, and you hear many, many answers from Israeli officials. Part of it is uh, there has been this convoy of uh, world leaders coming to visit Joe Biden, Rishi Sunak, uh, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor. Uh, and, and whenever any of them have been in town, that has not been seen as a good time for Israel to start a ground invasion. So that's been one source of delay. Another one has been the situation on the northern border with Lebanon, where Hezbollah, the Shia militant group in, in Lebanon, uh, has been slowly escalating its own attacks against Israel. It started out firing a few mortars across the border. Uh, it has now escalated to sort of targeted uh, missile attacks on on Israeli uh, military positions and Israeli towns in the north. And so the Israeli army is worried that that might turn into a full-fledged second front, that if they they do this ground invasion of Gaza, that Hezbollah will get involved in a much bigger way. And so they've wanted to have some time to send more troops north to prepare uh, defenses and a battle plan in the north. Uh, and so that has held up what's happening on the Gaza border. Do you think that Israel will go in or will it will it be dissuaded is it the kind of the madman theory that they they are prepared to annihilate gaza but at the last minute something happens to persuade them not to but they could if they wanted to in the past i would have said there's a good chance that it would be the latter scenario that they that they wouldn't do it in 2014 there were a number of right-wing politicians in israel who were making very public calls for a large ground invasion. And, and that was just empty talk. It never happened. But uh, I think it's just a very different situation this time. The the public mood is angry. It's grieving. The, the public wants revenge. And uh, it has been primed now by the Israeli political leadership to expect a long war. We've heard from the defense minister and other Israeli officials uh, who have talked about a campaign that's going to take months. They have mobilized 360,000 reservists. The 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 highest number of soldiers they've mobilized in about 40 years. So every sign that's come out of this government certainly points towards a ground invasion. But then you couple that with, again, this changing view of Hamas and the sense that Israel can no longer live with it. And, and I, I think uh, it is heading towards a ground offensive. Did Hamas choose its moment for some reason? You know, it's very hard to say. There's a, there's a political side to Hamas and there's a military side to Hamas. And what seems to have happened uh, is that a very small number of military leaders uh, decided to carry out this operation, decided when to carry out this operation. Um, my colleagues and I have spoken with a number of the political leaders of Hamas over the past two weeks, and every single one of them has either explicitly or implicitly expressed surprise at the timing of the attack. And you can dismiss that as, uh, okay, they just don't want to take responsibility, but there's, there's other reporting and there's other evidence as well, I think, that points to the fact that they weren't in the loop. So why did they choose that moment? That that answer really has to come from one of a handful of people in the Hamas military wing who unfortunately don't talk to anyone. So we don't have an answer to that. Similarly, we don't know how much of a hand Iran had in the timing. We don't. Uh, there's been all sorts of reporting about this uh, in both directions. We've heard from American officials and Israeli officials and also Hamas officials all of whom have denied that there was an Iranian role in this. But they would, wouldn't some they, of that, it, 
exactly. Some of that is is understandable. The Israelis don't want this to turn into a regional war that involves Iran. Neither do the Americans. So no one has an incentive to blame this on Iran. We can say there certainly was an Iranian role in the sense that they provide funding to Hamas. They provide uh, weapons, other military support. Uh, and I, I suspect that there was some coordination, at least. I don't think Hamas would have undertaken this big of an operation without at least giving some heads up to the Iranians. But whether they planned this operation or, or directed it or chose the timing of it, there's no evidence uh, so far pointing to that. A little later in the program, Greg, I'm talking to a foreign affairs writer and commentator called Simon Tisdall, who is seriously worried that it's going to blow up into a, a regional or global conflict. There are lots of players involved, including he mentions Russia and China, you know, hoping that the United States is going to be discredited and weakened and so on and so forth. What do you think? I'm not sure about a global conflict, but a regional one uh, is is certainly a very real concern. And it's something that everyone in the Middle East is is worried about right now. Aside from Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, you have Iranian-backed militias in Syria and Iraq. Uh, you have the Houthis and Iranian-backed group in Yemen. Uh, and we have seen over the past uh, 48 to 72 hours, all of those groups uh, getting involved, albeit in a small way, in the fighting. Uh, there were drone attacks on American military bases, both in Syria and Iraq. And then uh, last night, uh, the American military said that it had shot down uh, missiles fired from Yemen, which it believes might have been uh, headed towards Israel. So the Houthis, a group that is 1,400 kilometers away from Israel, uh, may have tried to fire rockets at Israel. All of this is is fairly small, and I think so far all of this is just meant to show that Iran's proxies are all in support of the Palestinians and, and in support of the cause, and I don't think it, it yet points to a wider war. But uh, everyone has threatened, the Iranians have threatened, Hezbollah has threatened, uh, that if the Israelis go ahead with a large ground invasion, that they will escalate their response. I will ask you, even though I, I, I imagine that it might irritate you, to, do you have an opinion as to who or what was responsible for the Ali Arab Hospital blast? I don't have a conclusive opinion about that. What I can tell you is that the the balance of the evidence that I have seen so far, which is not conclusive evidence, uh, suggests that it was not an Israeli airstrike. Just looking at the photos and the videos and the images that have come out in daylight from that hospital, uh, the, the crater that we see there is far too small to be uh, what you would see from an Israeli airstrike. The damage surrounding it uh, does not resemble the sorts of damage that, that I've seen uh, at the site of Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. So uh, it looks really inconsistent with that theory. But whether the Israelis are correct that this was a misfired Palestinian rocket or whether there is some other explanation for it, uh, there's there's nothing definitive yet, unfortunately. How hard is it to, to cover this conflict, indeed this situation, which you've been doing for a long, long time? I'm quoting someone who was quoting someone, um, and it's like 9-11. 9-11 made scandalous the presentation of context. It's it's an incredibly difficult situation, I think, for, for two reasons. One is trying to cover what is actually happening in Gaza right now. Uh, we can't go. Foreign journalists can't get in. The border crossing, uh, the border crossings, both with Israel and Egypt, uh, are shut, and, and they're going to be shut for the foreseeable future. 
Uh, there are local journalists in Gaza who are trying to do their work under impossible circumstances, but they're struggling with the shortages of electricity, with internet outages, with uh, the same problems that everyone else in Gaza is dealing with. So trying to get accurate information about the, the conflict in Gaza is very difficult right now. And then trying to figure out what is happening in the broader regional picture. This we use the word unprecedented too much, I think, but this really is an unprecedented situation from the size of the massacre on October 7th to the scope of the Israeli bombardment to uh, the fears of a regional war that have followed. I think we're all we're in uncharted territory here. And even those of us who've been working on this region for a long time, I think, are now questioning a lot of the assumptions that that we held before. Good to talk to you, Greg. Thank you for your time. Greg Karlstrom, who was The Economist's Middle East correspondent. He's in Dubai at the moment.